The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Are you ready? From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's the Boston Podcast with David Yaz and a rotating cast of characters from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. This is our f***ing Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all the ships at sea, lovers, muggers, and thieves, welcome to the Boston Podcast. My name is Dave. If you like this show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcast or wherever you find your podcast, Spotify or whatever app you got going on the phone there. Just want to thank our new sponsor, All Inclusive with Jay Ruderman. It's a podcast focused on inclusion and social justice. Some great interviews on that show. Check it out. Find it on Apple Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere else you find your podcast or go to All Inclusive Podcast. Dot com. And by the way, if you'd like your own podcast, kids, go to pod617.com. It's what we do here at the Boston Podcast Network in our Westwood studios, which are already 90 degrees, of course, because it can never be just right. It's all I'm looking at my guest, Tony. It, it's, it can never be just a nice temperate 73 and a half degrees or something. <clears throat> and so you get sore throats and then you end up coughing on your podcast. Anyway, my guest today on the Boston Podcast, which is the show that tells the voices uses the voices of your city for the stories of your city. We've got a great voice today. His name's Tony Narrow? Narrow. Narrow. Yep. Like okay. narrow, narrow-minded. Narrow narrow-minded. And ironically, he's anything but narrow-minded. He's a wonderful criminal defense attorney, and he's here in the virtual... I was about to say the virtual studios. He's here in the actual studios! Real deal. Can you believe it? You're, you are the first guest in a long time to be in studio, and... It's uh, a sign of the times. Are we officially open everywhere, you think? I think we are. We, I just walked into Starbucks, right. and, uh, you know, I actually I had, I had my mask in my hand just in case, yep. and I, I was making my way through, and I did a double check on the sign on the door, and it said, okay, if you're vaccinated, you're good to go. Right. So I said, fantastic, you know? Yeah, the mask in the pocket has become the new move, I think. That's yeah. what I do, too. Yeah. And sometimes my, my habit is I'll go into the supermarket, and I'll look around, and if... More than half of the people wearing masks, I'll pull it on. Just, you know, I can, I can deal with it for another... If it makes other people feel comfortable, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Tony is a criminal defense attorney, as I mentioned. At uh, It's Berezani Law, is that correct? Berezani Law, yes. Berezani Law. Okay. Sorry, Mr. or Ms. Berezani. Is that a partner of yours? Or? So, and Eric Berezani, their husband and wife, they own oh. the firm. Yeah. Okay. Great, wonderful people. So it was Mr. and Ms. Okay, so yeah. good. So, see, that's why you need to be inclusive people. It's very important. All right, to kick things off, we're going to play a round of burning questions and get to know Tony a little bit better as he graces our studio. So let's play burning questions. Here it comes. Just one more thing. I have a riddle for you. Answer the question. All right. This is exciting because the first question on the list reads, what will you do when the pandemic ends? And it's more like... What are you doing now that the pandemic is is ending? So what is the first thing that you look... Maybe you haven't even done this thing yet. Look forward to that you couldn't do during the pandemic, Tony. You know, what I'm really looking forward to mm -hmm. is going to a nice steak restaurant. Yes. And having a nice steak with a glass of wine. Probably a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, keep, and, and keep them coming. And yeah. kicking it off with a Manhattan at the end. I mean, I'm just, I'm just psyched for that. All right. Well... You've answered that question correctly because Manhattan is, is my favorite drink. So do, do you ever make them yourselves or strictly ordering out kind of thing? Oh, I, I make them myself. I make them myself. So give me your, your go-to your recipe, like your brand. and. So, so my go-to yep. is, is Knob Creek. Nice. And as far as the sweet vermouth goes, I, I play around with different sweet vermouths. But I buy the good stuff, the expensive stuff. Oh. You know, if, if the bottle of vermouth is, you know... Less than 15 bucks, first of all, just walk away. Don't yeah. get the Martini and Rossi. Right. Made in France, uh, sweet vermouth. You know, I'd say between Cin the Cinzano, $20 Cinzano still uh, a little too low shelf. Cinzano, it's kind of basic, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like to get creative. Okay. I like to get creative. Okay. And, and, and there are, it's a complex drink, the it sweet is. vermouth. And you can, you can have it on its own as well, and a couple ice cubes is nice. But I, I'd say if you're in between the 20 and $30 range, you're, you're in a good space there. Because you don't want to put – it's like cooking with wine, right? You don't want to cook with 
shit wine. Right. Right. Part of my French, but it's okay. It's a podcast. Same thing with with the, if you're if you're gonna use a good bourbon, you're yep. gonna use Knob Creek. Yep. Right. Why are you gonna put garbage vermouth in? There? Yeah, you'll ruin it. Yeah, you ruin you it. Also ruin it if you put too much in. You don't want to make the the Manhattan too sweet. Now, what about bitters? So I'm sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends oh. on it depends on the mood. Okay. And uh, sometimes I'll throw the cherries in. Sometimes I won't. I mean, yeah. You got to have good cherries too. You well, know, I agree with you there too. Yeah, yeah. you got to get yourself. Believe it or not, you got to get yourself like a thirteen dollar jar of, of cherries. You yeah. know, don't get the maraschino cherries that they throw on the Sunday at Friendlies. A- absolutely right? not. Yeah. And, and you can judge a a good bar by what they put in their drink. That's right. what they, and if you get if you go to a bar and they give you one of those Sunday toppers right. in your drink, I mean, it just goes from like. A, Potentially five star restaurant to one star, and and I tell you where I learned that was at Eastern Standard, rest in peace. I mean that was the greatest place to get a Jeez, drink in the I had, city. I had forgotten that was gone. Oh yeah. my god, it's yeah. it's it's a it's it's such a loss. That yeah. and Island Creek. I mean those two places were that place is gone too. It's gone. The the, the place in, yeah. in Kenmore Square. Yeah, gone. Where are we gonna eat before we go watch the Sox? I you know it's Damn. a great question, but yeah. I think I think somebody's uh, filling them in right now. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, what I've been doing lately with my Manhattans, I've been kind of mixing it up, and I've been doing a champagne cognac. Ooh. i got to write this down. Absolutely. It's fire. It's great. I was, so I was shocked. Wait, I was, champ? Well, I don't even know what champagne cognac so is. So, VSOP. Right. Uh, and, um, and I don't... Oh, I so, okay, so it's a, it's a cognac, and that replaces cognac. the bourbon in your Manhattan? Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, I happen... Blowing well, my mind. Yeah, my, my uncle uh, inherited his liquor cabinet, and, <laughs> and the other night I said, I want a Manhattan and have any bourbon. And so this cognac did some googling. Let's try it out. <laughs> Phenomenal, really? Phenomenal. Wow, you're yeah. you're like you, the man who discovered plutonium by accident. Exactly. That's great. <laughs> the comedian Adam Carolla tells a story about how he invented a drink, which he has on shelves now in certain liquor stores. It's called Mangria, as a twist on sangria. He was at home one night. The kids were asleep, but he was looking for something to drink, and out of beer. So he went and grabbed some wine and then noticed there was some vodka around. He said, let's see what happens if we put a shot of vodka in the wine with some fruit and some other stuff. And, and Mangria was born. So, But uh, you need a name for that uh, Cognac Manhattan. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe call it the Bronx or something. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, that was, that was more information. Oh, yeah. The bitter. Uh, by the way, don't sleep on flavored bitters. Cherry bitters is, cherry bitters. is my favorite. Yeah. It's just a nice little sting of cherry, not too sweet. That's, that's my move. Okay. All right. What do you listen to in the car now that we're all back sitting in traffic again? The Boston Podcast. Well, what thank the hell you. Else that's is correct. There? There's that, nothing thank else you. to listen yes. to. Yeah. Johnny, tell him what he's won, please. <laughs> no, what? And when you're not listening to the Boston Podcast, what else? Yeah. Honestly, these days I'm on the phone. Okay. I'm on the phone. I used to listen to NPR. I, I can't take it anymore. I was listening. I listen, you know, I listen to music, but at the end of the day, I try to make my commute productive. Mm-hmm. I drive to New Hampshire every day, and so if I'm not with my family, I try to just be as productive as possible. Make client calls, catch up with friends, and you know, do all the stuff that you can't do at the office or when you have kids at home. So yeah, you know, how old are your kids, by the way, Tony? So uh, Bianca is almost. She's six in October, and Luca is uh, two in September. I love those names. Yeah. Oh, thank <clears throat> you. Sorry, Luke is your son or your daughter? Luke is my son. Son, okay. Yeah. Bianca, obviously named after Bianca Jagger, I take it. Yeah. No. <laughs> is- it was discussed, actually, when we, when we picked her name, but we were looking for a nice Italian name for our, our daughter, and I was more on the ethnic side of things. My wife, not so much. And she said, you know what? Bianca Jagger. Yeah, that works. <laughs> well, sh- she'll be the more noble Bianca on the planet Earth. I'm sure there are okay. others, but uh, not too many. It, I mean, I like the idea of having... The kids have different names, distinct names. And my, my son's names are Adrian and Griffin. Beautiful. And Adrian was, was still pretty novel when we named him 22 years ago. Actually, Adrian has his birthday next week on June 14th. Awesome. Happy birthday. Happy. He'll be 23. And, uh, but, you know, people said, well, what's, uh, where do those names come from? And we were like, yeah, we just like the sound of them. So, yeah. anyway. All right. So, all right. So, you don't listen to anything interesting in the car. That's yeah. okay. We'll give totally you a pass, on, we'll give totally you pass on that one. Tony, have you ever had a other than Tony? Have you ever had a nickname? And if so, what is it? Yeah, so I my my nickname uh, was Guido. Oh, in <laughs> when I was younger, doesn't hold up very well. No, no, it does not. <laughs> but well, I, I I played baseball, and you know, baseball nicknames are just just the worst. Mm-hmm. And um, 
one of the guys on the team got excited one day and yelled Guido, and because you know I was Italian, <laughs> great. And my, I would tell you this: my father was no, not a fan, okay. not a fan. I think that he grew, he grew up in New York, and he was first generation, and I think he probably suffered some discrimination as an Italian in Brooklyn in the Italian neighborhood and um, was not a fan of Guido, but it stuck. And that was, that was my nickname for many, many years. And if you, if you own it, then it's not disrespectful, right? You know, Hey, I was good. So at the end of the day, you know, I, Took it as a term of endearment and ignored the racism, which I probably wasn't aware of at that. <laughs> yeah, age. that's the kind of that at that age it kind of flew over your head, right? Yeah, and especially those days. Yeah. Did it was get... an upgrade from pasta belly. I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Would... it was. Yeah, I was oblivious to any of that too. And I went to Milton Academy, where if your name wasn't Churchill or Hathaway, or you know, I'm a half Jewish, half Irish kid. I didn't know what the hell was going on. But did you end up uh, playing ba- baseball? Through high school and all that? Or? So I, I played my freshman year. It was a great year. We were undefeated. I, I, I was a starting pitcher. And then after that, I fell off and just uh, focused on wrestling for the really? most part. Yeah. And um, how far did you get there? Wrestling, I, I mean, I was captain of my team. So four years uh, straight. And, not in uh, college, though? Not in college, okay, yeah. no. My brother wrestled in college. He was much better than me. I just loved the sport. You know, mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, you know I was one of those kids that was, I wasn't a, a superstar in any particular sport, but I was good Enough to get on varsity. Mm-hmm. I never was cut from a team. Mm-hmm. You know, I walked on to varsity lacrosse when I was a senior. The wrestling season was over. I didn't want to play baseball, and I taught myself how to play lacrosse in a couple months over the summer and, and walked on to the team. So Where did you grow up? Where's Westfield, Westfield. Westfield, Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a good person to ask this question because people are, are mumbling about it and rumbling about it in Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And... That's why every pitcher somehow throws 95 miles an hour now, and every other player strikes out. If you're watching a baseball game now, make a bet with the person sitting next to you saying, I bet he strikes out, and you're, you're probably going to win. You're probably going to double your money right there. But there are a lot of theories of foreign substance and training and anything. Do you follow it? Do you have a, a thought on that? Yeah, you know, I was listening to that the other day, and, and there are always complaints. You know, when, when, when there weren't pitching duels and everyone was knocking the, the ball out of the park, there were complaints about, well, you know, these scores are out of, out of control. And, and now they're saying, well, the game's boring. Look, if you're a baseball fan, watching an ace smoke people yeah. is not boring. Right. It's not boring at all. Yeah. And people also forget what baseball is. It's a summertime leisure sport. It's meant for you to sit in the stands, relax, have a beer, and you're not watching the game Completely intently. Look, right. when you're at the Sox game, you're chatting it up with your friends. Mm-hmm. You know, you're having a good time. You get into it in moments, but it's a leisurely sport. It's not like basketball or hockey where there's actual action going on at every moment, right? It, yeah, and and I'll always love baseball. My my dad brought me up on baseball. My dad, um, who by the way, in in November, listeners, Saul Yaz will receive will be inducted into the Cape Call Cape Cod Baseball League Hall of Fame wow. as an executive. He's worked for them for for many years. So for those who care, yeah. That'll be in November. I'll update you, everybody. Yeah. And so, but you're right. The, the best parts of baseball, ironically, the best parts of baseball sometimes aren't the actual action on the, on the field because the amount of time the ball is in play compared to how long you're sitting there is minuscule compared to other sports, right? And so I love football because it's the opposite of that because you, you literally don't want to miss a play. You right. know, you might, you might really miss something. In baseball, you know, th- sometimes the best parts of it are – to, to wax poetic like George Will, you know, the, the smell of the grass, the smell of the peanuts, the, you yeah, know, the, yeah. the, the occasional, you know, crack of the bat. And, and it is, and Fenway Park's beautiful still. So it's a great place to be. I'm with you. Maybe I'll see you there this summer. Amen. Uh, and, and I guess they're getting up to full capacity soon at, at Fenway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just really a leisurely stroll through burning questions. This has nothing to do with the television show, friends, but how would your friends? That's a great question. I think. I think they would say I'm loud. <laughs> they would, uh, your, your level on the mixing board here is completely normal, so you consider your, your voice a clean bill of health. I'm on okay, my best so behavior this morning, my friend. I've only had three coffees, too. Wait till I get to five, still, then I'll be cranking. It's still not quite 9 a.m. today as we yeah. record this. Yeah. yeah. Okay, loud. Yeah, so loud, high energy, good. and I, I think that uh, most people would find that I'm, I'm the kind of guy that would do anything for anyone. You know, if there's a favor that's, that's needed... I put myself, you know, behind them, and, and I get the favor done. And that's just, that's just how I approach life. And I'm also a family man. You know, I love my family. Mm-hmm. They're my life. All good things. We'll give you points for all that. But that's, that, that's you know, the, the, the old phrase that I used to use is, you know, who's the person you're going to call at 
2 a.m. when your car breaks down, you know, and, and there are certain people that will come, no questions asked, and just because you're a friend, and, you know, and so it used to be three or four times a week at 2 a.m. I'd be calling uh, my friend Bill, and eventually we weren't friends anymore. No, yeah. no, I'm, no I'm just kidding, but, but that's, those are good answers. Yeah. Would your clients describe you the same way? I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, my clients, uh, sometimes, you know, they, they email me and they'll say, or they'll call me and say, why, why are you working at 1 a.m.? Why are you working at 1 a.m.? I had one client ask me on, on uh, Christmas Eve. She said she was a new client and she never had an attorney before. She's going through a divorce. And she said, so, so, so when do you stop working? How does this, when, don't you have a family? I said, of course I do. Of course I do. But it's nine at night mm-hmm. and you got issues. And they're sleeping. So mm. We're working. That's great. You know? And so I, I think that they would find that I'm, I'm somebody that cares deeply about them. And I do. It's genuine. I remember what you just said reminded me of a documentary I saw. This is before the, the current golden age of docs that we're in. But this must have been, you know, in the 90s or something. And it might have been produced by 60 Minutes. So there are some vague details for you. But it followed a criminal defense attorney through an appellate process. And the client was on death row. And the lawyer, as... As we know from watching these the accounts of such things, that he was trying every trick in the book to try to forestall the execution. I mean, that's what a lawyer does. And at one point, you know, as the cameras are, are on him, he looks at the desk. He says, they've got an improper something notice. It was some, I don't, you would know, I, I don't remember what it was, but it, it was some typographical error or something. And he, and he jumps up out of his desk and he, he runs out of the office and he's running down to the courthouse to try to get on the, the docket to argue this. And later the, the, you know, the filmmaker or the interviewer says, is this what a lawyer does? You know, you're, you're all haggard. You're running around like crazy. And he says, I've never felt more like a lawyer. And I thought that was pretty cool that, you know, sometimes it takes hustle and sometimes it takes taking the phone calls at 9 p.m. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I I probably have at least one client call every night. Really? Usually, usually it's between nine nine thirty and ten thirty, and um, because you know that's my kids when they go to bed, and you know don't judge me. My my six year old goes to bed at nine at night, and so once I'm done with the bedtime routine with them, and, and my wife takes over, you know I I fire up the computer and I start working. And look, a lot of people have jobs. You know, you represent working people. Right. They can't take time out of the day or things happen during the day and they want to talk about it. This is their life. So I give them that time. I work every night until midnight. Last night I worked till one. So if I'm up and they're up and they need to talk, let's hop on the phone. You know? Yeah. Um, so if you can't sleep, if I'm having trouble with the crossword puzzle at 1230 at night, you don't mind? Yeah, I mean, I might so- send you a bill for it, but, you know, it's okay. <laughs> um, I'll talk to you, David. Does. No problem. <laughs> Um, let's see. We'll do one more question for burning questions because we've been taking our time. All right. This is uh, important, Tony. On uh, the screen, you can't see it, listeners. This is a podcast. But the are the list of the top ten karaoke songs according to a survey. If you had to pick one to sing, which one would it be? I guess I'll read them. Uh, 500 Miles by The Proclaimers. These boots are made for walking Nancy Sinatra. Crazy by Patsy Cline. Happy by Pharrell. Copacabana by Barry Manilow. That's the way I like it. Casey and the Sunshine Band. Celebration by Cool and the Gang. Funky t- Don't Worry, Be Happy by McFarland and Eye of the Tiger. Ish. This list needs to be updated, I think. Anyway, if, you've had, if you had to. Yeah, you know, I, I would say I'd have to go with Happy by Pharrell Williams because okay. that's the song me and my, my kids have been dancing to and playing okay. a lot. I like it. And uh, I think they'd have a blast watching me sing out of tune to it. That's, that's great. Weird Al Yankovic has a, as he will have, has a parody of that song, and it's called Tacky, I think. And he, <laughs> the video is great because he's got celebrities dressed in tacky clothes walking through the streets. It, how about if you had to go, if you wanted to go off the board and, you know, you were handed the microphone at a, at a karaoke bar? I mean, no doubt, Rapper's Delight, Sugar Hill Gang. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the whole 15-minute version of it, too. <laughs> And you know, do you know the words to that? That used to be a thing. I mean, that's the, I, that you're a younger man than I. I would think that you must have picked it up sort of later in life. But that, that goes back to the 70s, I think. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I remember watching it on, I think it was Soul Train. They did like a live version <laughs> yeah. of it. And, um, and I remember watching that and thinking, that, that is a great it's song. It's really one of the first rap songs. And, um, yeah, there you go. And it just kind of keeps going with a hip, hip, hippity hop. And you know, let's get to some of the lyrics here. 
But I wouldn't give a sucker or a bum from the rock and not a dime till I made it again. Everybody go, oh, tell, no, tell, how is it? It does hold up. It does. And there it is. There it is. Yeah, which later became a different hip-hop song. This song spawned a lot of uh, imitators and everything. That's good. I think you've uh, successfully navigated burning questions for the day, Tony. Beautiful. Your main voice. Well done. So let's talk a little bit about what you do. You're here, after all. Fair. So, so tell people, primarily criminal law? Is it, is it white collar? Is it anything? And, and what else? Tell so, us. So I'm a, I'm a criminal defense attorney in New Hampshire. Primarily, I handle, you know, state cases. So I don't do federal work. I stay out of federal court. I do DWIs, domestic assaults, sexual assaults, burglaries, stuff like that. When I was at the public defender's office, you know, I was doing homicides. Generally, those are not cases that people can afford to hire attorneys for. So those will generally all go to the public defender's office now. So that chapter of my career is likely over. Did you try some murder cases? I have. Yeah. Yeah. I have. With with what kind of results? So the I tried a second degree murder case it was about a year or two years ago. Sad case. It was a child victim. It was a uh, a split verdict. So it was guilty on recklessly causing the child's death, not guilty on knowingly causing the child's death. At the end of the day, it wasn't a victory because you know it's maximum penalty of life. It was just two different variants, and the only difference that it really made in terms of sentencing comps. So when you're comparing different sentences from different cases, you know, the most similar case to that in New Hampshire, the person was convicted of acting knowingly. And so there is a difference. But at the end of the day, when you have a child, the court cares very little what your mental state was at that point in time. Second degree murder is second degree murder. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman. All Inclusive is a podcast focused on inclusion and social justice. Join me as I interview leaders and experts on the latest news focused on advocacy for social justice. In order to make progress that will lead to a more equitable future, honest discussions must be held. That is what All Inclusive is all about. Listen and subscribe to the All Inclusive podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Visit the show website for more information and full episode transcripts at www.allinclusivepodcast.com. I know that to draw a parallel that in medical malpractice cases, lawyers tell you that once you're at trial, the chances of winning are actually something like one in nine or maybe even one in 10. And I'm wondering if it's similar to murder cases. In other words, you haven't been able to plead it out to anyone's satisfaction mm-hmm. and you go to, do you know sort of what the numbers are on that? Like, So it depends on the jurisdiction. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about Suffolk County, Massachusetts, the conviction rate, as far as homicides go, is, I think, low. It is. Okay. You know, it is, I, I remember Michael Dooley, who I think he's now a judge, great trial attorney out of Dorchester, Remember, he had three acquittals on first-degree murder in a row. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Now, the, the quality of the evidence in Suffolk County is going to be a lot different than the quality of evidence in New Hampshire. right? Because in Suffolk County, there's more of a culture of you know, not cooperating with the police, right? witnesses disappearing, and people not being able to track them down. And the number of murders is just so high. Mm-hmm. Right? That it's hard to put all the necessary resources into them sometimes. And I think that's been addressed. I think that was addressed when Dan Conley you know, was in office. And I think now with the new DA, that's also something that's been a front of mind. And that's, you know, that's why shifting away from prosecuting poor people for petty crimes and putting your resources towards more serious offenses makes sense yeah, from a public safety sure. standpoint. New Hampshire, the conviction rate is... It's almost 100% when you go to trial. Public defender out of Manchester, Julian Jefferson, I forget who his co-counsel was, so I'm not doing them justice, but he had a not guilty in a homicide um, three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. It's a self-defense case. Outside of that, you might have acquittals for first-degree murder, but convictions for second-degree murder, or you know, Carrie Smith, another fantastic public defender, and her co-counsel, who I'm forgetting. You always remember the lead, you know? <laughs> I know. It's so not fair. Four second-seaters, um, yeah. You know, she tried a drug rip where it was you know, charged as, I think, first- or second-degree murder. Jury acquitted but convicted him of manslaughter, mm. right? So you have 15 to 30 years in prison. So you might have some split verdicts like that, again, 
jury in my case acquitted of knowing, convicted of reckless. Mm. Right? And so that you'll see in New Hampshire. But all outright acquittals, I think, are very rare in, in homicide cases. And also the good cases, the cases where that are triable, they resolve. Mm-hmm. They don't head to trial. Right? So Let me ask you about something that has always bothered me. I mean, I was at Lawyers Weekly for 15 years, and so hopefully on the on lawyer's side for most issues so everyone take this for what it's worth but one of the thing one of the things that really gets me is when criminal defense tor- attorneys get criticized in sort of a blanket umbrella way like they're you know i mean there's ways of putting down any every profession you sure. know i used to be a writer all the writers all they want to do is sell papers you know you know lawyers scumbags ambulance chasers if you're and if you're a criminal defense attorney yeah they'll, they'll say i can't believe that they would stand up for a person like that so the, the big question, which I'm sure is nothing new to you, sure. but I'll let you answer it, is why do you defend someone, particularly in a case where they have done what they're accused of? Yeah. So, you know, criminal law is more than just guilt and innocence, right? So, you know, I've had clients who have been, you know, did the rights, guilty of the offense, have even admitted it to me. And they're contrite and they're good people. They just had a bad moment in their life, Mm -hmm. right? And the government doesn't see it that way. They just see them for what the offense was. And, you know, part of my job is humanizing that person who has committed the crime and trying to humanize them to the the government, the prosecutor, and also to the court. And and that's what's really, you know, I think the biggest part. I mean, I am a trial attorney, but... You know, 95% of cases end up in pleas, right? Probably more. And so your job at that point is to advocate for your client in the sentencing context, right? And also charge bargaining, right? Ensuring that because justice isn't always what, you know, the government is asking for. So, you know, I'm I'm looking to to mitigate Mm -hmm. in many in many instances. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, at the same time, you know, is a is a conviction for somebody who's guilty always justice? And I would say no. I would say no. And so sometimes fighting for them and pushing for an acquittal and getting an acquittal, even if they committed the crime, is justice. Mm-hmm. It is justice. And it's not just justice for them. It's justice for the system because by, by fighting these cases where the evidence is not strong and it's marginal, okay, and holding the state to its burden of proof, you are contributing to a system that will protect the innocent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. I think, yeah, it all makes sense. And I'm particularly moved by the sort of last part of what you said, because you don't people, you don't want to live in a world where you get accused of something and immediately the pendulum tips towards you being guilty. Just, and you know, I've heard some reporters say this, that it's like, well, you know, if they, I'm thinking of reporters for the Boston Herald. Sorry, Herald. This was a long time ago. But anyway, the, you know, the, the particularly conservative newspaper and and reputedly, you know, tough on crime or whatever. But they would say stuff like, you know, the the if if they weren't guilty of this, they're guilty of something. Well, I mean, imagine if that's you. You know, ima- imagine if you know, heaven forbid, you get accused of something that you really didn't do, but it doesn't look too good for you. Would you want the presumption to be that they're guilty? I had a remember my criminal law professor, the great Stanley X. Fisher, he, he said, what does it mean when you plead not guilty? So I'll ask you that question because people say, oh, you know, you did it, but you're going in there in the court and you're saying not guilty. So what does not guilty, pleading not guilty actually mean? I mean, it means you're not admitting to the charge defense. Right. You know, I, I'm not, this is not answering your question completely, but we talk about the presumption of innocence. Right. Right. And I think that's a, it's a bit of a, a misnomer. You're not actually presumed innocent in our system, mm-hmm. okay? I mean, do you think we're presumed innocent in our system? In, in theory, As a yes, matter of law. Yes, but, but in practice, no. I think in many cases you're pre- presumed guilty. You're the one in shackles there sitting in the, court, in the courtroom. Yeah. See, I think as a matter of law, you're not presumed innocent. All right, tell me why. So when you're arrested, mm-hmm. the police are allowed to arrest you if they have what? Probable, probable cause, cause, yeah, that you okay. committed the crime. Yeah. Okay, so they're saying it's probable that you committed the crime. Mm-hmm. You're not presumed innocent if it's probable. Mm-hmm. Right? When you're held on bail, when the grand jury indicts you, they're finding that it's probable that you 
committed the, the offense. They're finding actually by a preponderance of the evidence. That's more likely than not that you committed right. the offense. Okay. So you're not presumed innocent at that point in mm. time. Otherwise, there'd be no bail, right? Right. Um, you couldn't be held preventatively detained, mm-hmm. right? And so you're really only presumed innocent to the jury. Right. The jury, they're the only ones that are instructed that the defendant is presumed innocent. Make sure you continue talking to the mic, oh, Tony. I don't I'm want, sorry I just, about that. I don't want to miss any yeah. of your mellifluous yeah. tones. The, the, jury, the jury is the only um, body in that courtroom that is instructed that you're presumed innocent. The oh. prosecutor isn't presuming you innocent. Okay? The judge isn't presuming you innocent. And when you think about probable cause, preponderance of the evidence, or in preventive detention cases, clear and convincing evidence, mm-hmm. these are all standards where there's a finding against you. Maybe not guilt for a conviction, but there is a finding against you that you did something wrong. And so you're not presumed innocent. And I, you know, unfortunately, I have a lot of clients who say to me you know, when they're held on bail, I thought I was presumed innocent. I said, you thought wrong. <laughs> Well, um, well, and I don't mean to. I shouldn't laugh. These poor people that are being locked up. Yeah. But the, I guess, to push back on that, probable cause is, is, I would think, a necessary evil because if the standard were lower, then you'd have people locked up for stuff that they probably didn't do. I agree. Right? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so you you think it's 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 I guess the phrase I says the uh, necessary evil of the, of the system is that you're not presumed innocent all the way through. I, I would say that it is part of the system. I don't know that it is is necessary. I don't think any evil is necessary. You know, I'm an anti-carceral attorney, so I don't believe in putting people in cages. I don't believe in prosecuting people for offenses in the way that we, we do. I think our system is broken, and it, it needs a complete, you know, it needs an enema. In the words of the Joker in the first Batman, right? This town um, needs an enema. This yes. town needs an enema. I mean, our, our criminal justice system needs an enema. Our family court system needs an enema. Mm-hmm. I also do family law now in private practice, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think that there is a – the criminal justice system is broken, spend a couple of weeks in the family system. Mm-hmm. Spend a couple of weeks there. And you want to talk about wrongful accusations, false accusations of, of criminal conduct? Go, th- go to the family court. So does that mean the, the main symptom of this disease that requires an enema is that it is too easy to affect people's lives by simply accusing them of 110%. stuff? Yeah. Really? 110%. Okay. I mean, the law is, and in New Hampshire there's an instruction to this effect, that the jury can convict you if based only on a victim's testimony. Mm-hmm. An alleged victim's testimony. So if you have a sexual assault case involving a child and the child gets up and is the only witness in the case and testifies against you, it says that you sexually assaulted them, and that's the whole case. Jury, if they believe that child beyond a reasonable doubt, your life's over, yeah. even if you're innocent. Which is why, you know, I think smart prosecutors, they don't call a lot of witnesses in a sexual assault case. And that's why as a defense attorney, I often have a longer witness list in a sexual assault case than the prosecution, you know, calling the parents, you know, I'll call the parents, you know, a prosecutor's sexual assault case should generally just be the lead detective, especially if they interview the defendant and there were any admissions and, and the alleged victim. That's it. Now, I guess a cynic might say, well, what's going to make a kid lie about that? So we can use the, to use an obvious example, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen the Woody Allen, Mia Farrow documentary, but no. I haven't, no. Okay. All right. It might be too close to home for you. Yeah, I, I, know, I know. I, but, I can't watch shop stuff. But, but, but in, in a nutshell, you know, Woody says he didn't do it. And the, his, his daughter, who I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. Well, anyway, the, Mia and the daughter and others say that he did it. But the, the best you could, Woody does not come out smelling like a rose in the documentary. In fact, quite, quite the contrary, unfortunately, for him. But he does have a version of the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, and there are gray areas. And yeah. so that's where it becomes scary yeah. to think. It's, it's, it, in a way, it's scary to think that this guy's a monster, that, that, that he did certain things to kids. But you could argue it's even scarier to think if he didn't do it, yeah. You know, so so yeah. yeah. So why would why would a kid fabricate something? Are they that impressionable that an angry spouse? Yeah, I mean, so there are, there are a lot of reasons, and I'll tell you one of the things I say to juries is, listen, I don't know why they made this up. I don't know why they're saying what they they need to say, and you won't know either. And that's not something you don't have to understand why it's a lie. 
all that matters is that it's not true. And you know it's not true. And I go through the evidence that would point to innocence. To answer the question more directly, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. There are times when a child can be influenced, coached by another parent. There are times when a child has been a victim of a crime, a sexual assault, by another person. And they are transposing that memory to another adult. Mm. I mean, there is a lot of psychology involved. But quite frankly, there are a lot of times when they're not making it up. Mm. Right? And it, and it does happen. And it's, it's a tragedy and it's a nightmare. And, you know, it makes you angry as a human being. You know, I, I got my babies. I, I love kids. And a lot of people say, well, how do you how do, you do your job now that you, even after you had kids? Well, I love kids before I had kids. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> right. you don't just start, you know, it's kind of like people who say, well, geez, you know, I, I don't, you know, I get the Me Too movement now because I have a daughter. Well, what about before you had a daughter? Yeah. What if you had a son? <laughs> right. You're just going to be a misogynist yes. your whole life? You were aware of the existence of females, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It was a concept, right? You right. had a mother, <laughs> right? Right. Right. So in any event, yeah, you know, I've, I've, abuse of children is, is, is terrible. Yeah. And so, yeah, a lot of times they are. They are telling the truth. But here's the thing. As a defense attorney, it's not my job to judge the guilt or innocence of my client. It's my job to stand in their shoes and be their voice in court and to hold the government to its burden. It's the jury's job to judge the evidence and to judge their guilt or their, I would say, their innocence. They're not judging their innocence. They're really just judging whether or not they're guilty. Because if you're not guilty, that doesn't mean you're innocent. Mm. Right. Right. No, that brings me back to the original question here, which is yeah. uh, nice, nicely done. You might have a future in podcasting, Tony. But when my when my criminal uh, law professor said, what is not guilty? Now, I didn't know the answer, what he was looking for. But right. what he was looking for was pleading not guilty doesn't mean I'm not guilty of anything. And it it might not even mean. I didn't do the stuff you're accusing me of. What it means is, says Professor Fisher, prove it. When I say not guilty, I am saying prove it. You have to prove it. I don't have to prove it. At least at trial, yeah. Tony, I think you would concede that it, it, you do have to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And, yes. and so that's why I salute the work you do and all the great criminal defense attorneys that, that I know. Because at some point, as, as, as crippled as the system may be, you have to believe in it and work it the best way you can, which I'm, I'm sure is, is, is what you do. Yeah. And... It is set up, and, and one of the reasons why it is good to be American is it is at least set up, in, except for in Texas. No, just kidding, Texas. <laughs> that if they can't prove it, you're not guilty just because you're sitting there and you, and you look like a shady character, or, you know? Yeah. So let's hope that prevails most of the time. Yeah. I, I will tell you that, you know, believing in the system is, is not something that I would say I, I, I do. Right? I don't know that I believe in the system because... I don't believe that the system is fair, and I think that the system is designed to persecute poor people, black people, mm. brown people. And so to say I believe in the system, it wouldn't be genuine of me. I will tell you that I believe in juries. I believe in juries. Mm -hmm. And I never thought that I, I, I could mm -hmm. And until I started reading transcripts of appeals when I was in law school, and I was, I was you know, as a clerk for a law firm, I was writing appeals. And I remember reading one of my first transcripts. And this guy, first of all, his attorney should have, I know, his attorney did move to sever and it was denied. And so our argument on appeal was you should have severed this. Mm. And he had two different burglaries, same MO, stealing, you know, prescription pads and writing out prescriptions for Oxy. And, and the jury came back and acquitted him of one of the counts and convicted him of the other. And I said to myself, my God, how did that jury do that? I mean, they, they, they had to have known he did both. I mean, I'm reading the, right. the evidence. I'm thinking, this right. guy's cooked. It'd be too much of a coincidence yeah. if he did one and, and not the other. And, yep. yeah. and, and to me, I said, man, that is some fortitude. And I've had cases where, you know, juries have been out for a long time and they convicted my client, but they struggled. Mm. They struggled to get to the right answer or they've come back. I, I had a, a 15 count rape and kidnapping case once. They came back with 14 acquittals, one conviction. And, and it was a significant conviction. It was a significant case. But it said to me, my God, they, they, it would have been easy for them just to walk over my client. In my homicide case, why, why parse through whether he acted yeah. knowingly or recklessly? Right. It's a baby, three years old. 
You know, those pictures give me nightmares to this day. Yeah. And for that jury to have spent, you know, two days out in that, in that deliberation room parsing through the mental state, if you can't believe in juries, I mean, yeah. after yeah. that. Well, because they, they, let's hope they do listen to the judge and the instructions because it, it is that important. I mean, the ultimate example, although it's not an example of, I don't think, of a shining example of our system, but the O.J. Simpson verdict, mm. a lot of people, you know, I don't remember what the juror said afterwards, but, you know, you, you see the guy, he's got a gun, he's, he's being chased by LAPD, famously, you know, yeah. through the, the, the freeway. He's, he did it. You know, he did it. A reasonable person would say he did it. But once they heard the testimony and they considered whether they had a reasonable doubt as to his guilt, it's like, well, we have to rule this way. I, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. So I, mean, I think the O.J. Simpson <laughs> verdict was more of a, oh, my God, a, a black man received some justice in the system. Yeah. And, and listen, I agree yeah. with you there. Yeah. If, if uh, the, the system is, still needs a lot of work in that yeah. regard, and because I get all my information from documentaries, the, the document 13 about the 13th Amendment mm-hmm. and how, you know, slavery isn't over. But in a way, the spirit of slavery has lived through the criminal justice system yeah. for decades. And it's. It's sad. Anyway, so Tony and I are almost done curing all the ills of society on this podcast. Give us uh, four more hours. We'll be done. Now, Tony, because time is short, we are going to get to a quick edition of Good Stuff before we close, where Tony and I will both recommend something good maybe to brighten your day. But tell people how they can get in touch with you. Sure. You can just Google me. You can go to my LinkedIn profile, and you can also just email me at Tony at BernazaniLaw.com. Good luck spelling that. So it's B-E-R-N-A-Z-Z-A-N-I-L-A-W.com. You know, I had to go to a law firm with a nice, strong, hard-to-spell Italian, you know, <laughs> name, you know, because my right. Italian name is way too easy to spell. Right. And you can also call me at the firm at 603-595-0600. There you go. I'm glad you gave out all the information and spelled Ber- Ber- sorry, Berzini. Berzini. Bernazani. Bernazani. Damn it. Sorry, because I didn't want to have to do that. But Tony Narrow is easy to remember. It's N-A-R-O is his, is his name, Anthony Narrow. And uh, we're going to play a quick round of good stuff. Before we do that, let me take one minute to tell you what we do here at the Boston Podcast Network. Pod617.com is where you go if you're interested in your own podcast. You could be right here. with. You could have been here with me and Tony this morning hanging out and just chit-chatting. But you could be producing your own show, which is what we do for you here. Podcasting is a great way to reach your clientele, your prospects. It's a great way to network. You invite guests onto the show. They'll be dazzled by the quality product that gets put out. Go to pod617.com to get started. The Boston Podcast Network in pod we trust. All right, let's play good stuff. Fire it up. Oh, that's the good stuff. So, Tony, do you have something to educate our listeners about that might brighten their day or something they should know about? Yeah, thanks, David. So I was recently elected in March to the board of directors of a great nonprofit in New Hampshire called Friends of New Hampshire Drug Courts. And they are, so drug courts are essentially alternative um, sentencing courts in New Hampshire, and they have them all over the country, where people who are suffering from substance abuse disorder are given an opportunity to avoid incarceration in in exchange for getting treatment, and it's through the court system. And what the friends do is we help provide financial to support to the participants. So for example, let's say you have uh, you know Joe Smith who is you know struggling with addiction and he's in treatment, he's in drug court and one of the things he needs to do is he needs to get insurance so he can get into treatment. But to get insurance, he needs an ID. And he doesn't have an ID. And so he doesn't have any money for an ID either and to get a state ID is $50. Well, we can provide him with a grant that he probably won't have to pay back to get that ID. Or let's say he has his first job, but he doesn't have a reliable mode of transportation and his brakes just went out on his car. And now he can't get to work. And if he loses his job, he's going to lose his apartment. If he loses his apartment, he's not going to be able to get into you know, succeeding treatment. And it's this downward spiral that poverty creates. And so what we'll do is we'll, he'll, he'll apply for a grant to fix his brakes and we'll provide those funds. And so really, you know, we recognize that drug courts work, that treatment works. Incarceration does not work from my perspective. And so at the same time, poverty, it creates a vicious cycle, David. And Mm -hmm. so 
what we tried in the in the court system. They can't, you know, they can't fix Joe's brakes. Right. Um, they can't buy him a new ID. And so what we do is we want to try to help people get over those hurdles that can impede their ability to succeed in treatment. Great stuff. And you can go to friendsofnhdrugcourts.org for more info, friends of New Hampshire, but it's friendsofnhdrugcourts.org um, to find out more info. And, and to donate. On you. And to don- yes, come on, give. I mean, it's clearly a worthy cause. And so thank you for bringing our attention to that today, Tony. Thanks that's, for letting uh, That's. And you say you just got elected to the board of this thing. In March. Do you, do, do you tend to do a lot of charity work? This is clearly near to the very being of what, what you do every day. So, yeah. Yeah. so as a, you know, I was a public defender for 12 years, so it was very difficult to be a volunteer and also be a public defender at the same yeah. time. So what I had done as a public defender was, you know, because I couldn't be a member of a board like this because I was directly involved litigating right. drug court cases. Yeah. Not so much now. So what I had done, I lived in Brookline for some time, and so I was elected town meeting member. I was a member of the Commission on Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Relations. And so I found other ways to volunteer my time cool. um, to my community. Town meeting. I was the moderator for the town of Sharon for six wonderful years and ran town meeting. And then Brookline has elected town meeting, right? That's so correct. So I was an elected, elected yeah. Yeah. And Precinct five. All right. Well, yeah, you got to, somebody needs to do a comedy show just about local town meetings. I mean, they sort of did it with Parks and Rec, I guess, but I mean, there's good stuff that gets done, but man, there are also people there that just have too, too much time on their hands. <laughs> I, I, I agree. You know, I live in Wayland now and we have just, you know, open town meetings. So you right. just show up and I think that's a terrible system. And I lived it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you I think it's either you, you got to switch to a city system or you have to have a representative democracy for, yeah. for town meeting. Otherwise, I mean, you just get, you know, 50 of your friends and you're going to get your agenda passed. And it's just. Yeah. Know. It's like I, I would oversee a four hour meeting and in the last 15 minutes, a woman would get up and talk about the importance of the law regarding dental implants or something and how it was very dangerous and. I was like, what do you want me to do about it? Please. It's 11.45. I want to go home. Anyway. Okay. As will happen, Tony recommended something noble and good, and I'll just recommend a TV show. So this is a documentary series on Netflix. I'm not usually a soccer guy, but this is about soccer. But really, it's about a town called Sunderland in the UK and how they live and die by their soccer team. And we will listen to uh, a little bit of the trailer. And Tony, you can watch our listeners. My favorite player when I was growing up was Niall Quinn. So my firstborn... Son, I decided to call Niall after Niall Quinn. Sunland is a massive, massive footballing city. And a shot blocked. Honeyman. Penalty. The last 10, 12 years, we've been in the Premiership. So penalty now to Sunderland. Chance to pull a goal back. Unfortunately, it's just went wrong. Another manager gone, another relegation. The problems run deep. Let us pray for Sunderland Football Club and for our city. What's they're talking it's about? It's not an opportunity if you don't take it. And the problem with opportunities is they're always hard work. And that's why a lot of people don't take them. Guide us in our love for our city and our club. For it, it is a love born out of passion. Help us through our anger and our fury when our team is not performing as best it can. Absolutely pathetic, we're sick of it. We can't walk away from this football club because we were born here, we were bred here, this football club is in our blood. Dear Lord, help Sunderland because the success of our team leads to the success and prosperity of our city. So you get an idea of, of what that's like. And I just stumbled across this on on Netflix and maybe they don't promote it more because they think it's just, for, but as you can tell, it's, it, it really is as dramatic as that trailer makes it sound. The, the town lives and dies by this team. And what you might not have picked up there was that there was a mention of relegation. So that's something that we don't have here in, in professional sports, but in, in, I think more than one league soccer league in Europe, there's this deal where there, so there are three divisions. I know all about this now, having watched, you know, you know, 24 hours of this documentary. There are two seasons. I think there's like eight to 10 episodes each season. And there are three leagues, the Premier League, the Championship League, and then League One. And even though League One is called League One, it's the lowest. And so if you finish in the bottom two of the league, you are 
relegated to the league below you unless you're already in the lowest league, right? So you have to win to survive or at least stay out of the last two. And <clears throat> Sunderland has this beautiful, you know, 15,000-seat stadium, great history, but they ran across just a terrible spell where they got relegated to the league. And then as the documentary picks up, they start losing in that middle league to the point where now their very existence in that league is, is jeopardized. And, like, the players get paid, like, a fraction of what they do when you, when you move down from league to league. So it's just it, – it, and <clears throat> there, are, there are great – I mean, there's a, little, there's a little bit of sports action, but it's more just the look on these people's faces. So um, – so soccer was one of the few sports you didn't play, Tony. I no, guess, I did but. play soccer. <laughs> oh, you did? did? Yeah, okay. yeah. I was a JV yeah. freshman sophomore year, and okay. then yeah. So will you will you give this a try for me? I, a, let, a, let me know. Ab- absolutely. And let me yeah. let me make a, a quick pitch to you sure. for Netflix. I have yeah. you seen Self Made? No, Self Made. Self Made. Yeah, okay. my my good friend Domain Davis. Uh, she directed I think episodes two and three of the four episode season, and it's. It's just I won't I won't get into the what it's a, just watch it it's great it's you're not even gonna tell me what it's about no why is it called self made it is it is about somebody coming from nothing okay and building a an empire okay okay that's a great um, teaser yeah it's all right I'm gonna I'm gonna get on that and the soundtrack is absolute fire it's, okay yeah <laughs> but uh, when when yeah and I, I would say anything that has the main Davis's name on it look her up watch it she's okay. fantastic cool. Does you want to be a guest on the Boston podcast? I can ask Maybe. Her. Okay, well, we'll find out. We'll follow up with that. <laughs> Thank you, Tony Nara. You're a fantastic guest. And all of Tony's information will be in the show notes in case you want to get in touch with him. Did you have fun, my friend? I had a great time. Thanks so much for having me. <clears throat> my pleasure. Thanks for being a guest on the... Oh. <coughs> the weather's changing, and I've got a sore throat. I'm sorry, people. Thanks for listening to the Boston Podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, the All-Inclusive Podcast. Find that anywhere you find your pods. If you like us, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcast. And if you want your own podcast, by the way, go to pod617.com to get started. My name is Dave. I'm just a guy from Boston. But on behalf of Tony, if you're not from Boston, you must be the other guy. Have a great day, everybody. Boston, everybody.